Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is deep. It is profound. It brings life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who will lead us into your truth today. We want to hear and see your word correctly. We need to understand it with our minds. We want to receive it with our hearts. We want to obey it with our lives. Shape and mold our wills, Lord, by your word. Challenge, encourage, and strengthen our character by your word. Please help us then to glorify you through our lives because of your word. We thank and praise you in advance. We are eager to learn the good things that you have in store for us this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King. Amen. Well, please take a seat, and as you do, would you turn in your Bibles or scroll in your digital Bible to Matthew chapter 1. A week ago, I had uh, the opportunity to preach this message, but had to do it in front of a fireplace with only my bride present because of the ice storms and the lack of power. And I'm so glad I get an opportunity to share this with you all this morning as well. This uh, passage is extremely rich in Matthew chapter 1. Tukumbo Ariemo was born into a royal Muslim family in western Nigeria. And he had the scars to prove it. Three distinct diagonal scars, one on each, uh, three on each cheek. Princely scars. He was marked to be royalty. But at the age of 22, he encountered Jesus Christ, and the trajectory of his life changed dramatically, beginning many years of theological education. I met him during my first year of seminary. He was eight years older than me. We enjoyed many lively discussions, both in class and afterwards. And it was during one of these after-class discussions that he seriously challenged my approach to studying scripture. He asked me a question about biblical genealogies. <laughs> I must have yawned or rolled my eyes or something because Tokumbo laid into me. I can still hear his distinctive clipped Oxford English accent. He had been schooled in, since a, an early age in Oxford English schools in Nigeria. In my village, Brother Tim, he would say. We're very different from you Westerners. You go, you Westerners, you like to study the Apostle Paul. You like to dig into Romans and Galatians and books like that. He said, but in my village, we like to study the genealogies. We like to look for the missing pieces. And so he encouraged me to study biblical genealogies, uh, to look for the missing pieces to look for missing truths about God's character and his purposes that may not be found in traditional doctrinal texts. In fact, Tukumbo was the first one who took me to Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy that was uh, preached on just a couple weeks ago by Pastor Scott. And I tell you what, Tukumbo would be very impressed and very pleased with the message that Pastor Scott gave. 
because he was able to pull out some truths from that genealogy that we often don't see. Tukumbo pointed out to me, and he was the first one to do this, uh, the presence of women in that genealogy and the significance of that. Well, Tukumbo went on to complete two master's degrees at that seminary and then added two doctorates on top of that, one in the United States and one in Scotland, before eventually serving as the General Secretary of the Association of Evangelicals in Africa. The Lord called him home after many years of struggling with cancer at the relatively young age of 65. This morning, I'd like us to follow Tukumbo's exhortation. I'd like us to be on the lookout for missing pieces as we look at this passage in front of us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let me read it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, this is week two of a series on the gospel according to Matthew, a series which we have given the title King Jesus because that is Matthew's approach throughout this gospel, 28 chapters. He's going to be presenting Jesus of Nazareth as king, not just of the Jews, but over all creation. And during the first week's sermon, Pastor Scott noted in the genealogy earlier in this chapter that there is a change of cadence in the genealogy of Jesus. I'd invite you to look very carefully at verse 16. Unlike the previous verses, which, depending on the version you have, may say, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and on and on in that same pattern. Or maybe it reads, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and then continues at that pattern. But that pattern, that cadence changes in verse 16. Today's passage, verses 18 through 25, explains why there's a change of cadence. In a sense, you might say it fills a void left by that verse. There's an anomaly in that verse, which today's passage deals with. 
In fact, beginning with verse 18 and running through the end of chapter 2, Matthew will narrate multiple ways in which the events surrounding Jesus' birth fulfill the scriptures. And the first of these is in today's passage. It is the most remarkable, it is the most miraculous, and it is the most controversial. This is our passage for today. Here's my hope. My hope is that you'll remember one or two or more points from this morning's message. You'll remember this next Christmas. Now, Christmas in our past is a couple months behind us. A lot of water and ice has gone under the bridge, right? But I'm trusting that 10 months from now, you'll remember some of this message from Matthew's narrative and apply it as you celebrate next Christmas. These verses explain how Jesus became formally adopted into the dynastic genealogy of David, how literally he became a legal son of David. Here's my big idea. We frequently use that phrase here when we preach. It simply means just a central theme, a central idea that we're going to wrap the sermon around. So if you remember nothing else, hopefully you'll remember at least this. Jesus' birth reveals realities of God's redemptive plan. Once again, Jesus' birth reveals realities of God's redemptive plan. I'm going to give you seven. Now, don't panic. I know we're used to maybe three points, four if we're super generous, a poem, a prayer, a benediction, and then we're done, right? But this passage is so rich. We're going to quickly go through seven of these realities that Matthew is revealing about God's redemptive plan. The first one is found in verse 18. Let me read that again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Also notice the last phrase in verse 20, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here's the first thing, the first reality that's revealed in the birth narrative of Jesus. It is supernatural. The origins of Jesus' conception and birth are supernatural. Now that may seem obvious. You may already know that, but it's foundational to the other six that are going to come after this. Let's not forget, in fact, let's start with this. The birth of Jesus is supernatural. That term birth, it's actually the word genesis, from which we get the first book of the Bible, Genesis. That term is used also in verse 1 of this chapter, but there it's translated genealogy. What Matthew's going to do here is he's going to unfold the beginnings, the genesis of Jesus, but now from a very personal perspective, more specifically from the perspective of the legal father, from the perspective of Joseph. The gospel according to Luke comes out the birth of Jesus primarily from the perspective of Mary. Matthew chooses to look at it through the lens, through the eyes of Joseph. 
The term betrothed is one that we may not fully understand, and it might confuse us because we might think of engagement. But then you'll notice in verse 19, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband. So how is that possible? Well, there are actually three stages in the cultural process of marriage in the Jewish uh, tradition during this time, during the time of Joseph and Mary. The first would be called engagement, and that would be something done either by the parents or possibly even a matchmaker. If you've seen the classic movie Fiddler on the Roof, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that decision of engagement between a young man and a young woman may have been made years before, even while they were children. Once they get to the age of marriageability, then a decision has to be made. The young woman, the young man have to agree to step into the next stage, which is betrothal. So you move from engagement to betrothal. And betrothal was legally binding. In fact, in order to break a betrothal, a divorce would be required. Now, it's very possible that Mary may have been a young teenager, somewhere in the age range of some scholars would say as early as 12, possibly 13 or 14. Whereas Joseph, on the other hand, would be a few to several years older. Jewish men in Joseph's day typically married between the ages of 18 and 20. The third stage of marriage is actually the marriage, the consummation uh, sexually and in terms of living together that would come after the public ceremony. Prior to that public ceremony, sexual relations, living together under one roof, would not be permitted. So we see right out of the gate here in verse 18 a potential problem, a predicament that Joseph finds himself in, and that is Verse 18 states that before they came together, in other words, before they had had the final ceremony and they started living together and having sexual relations together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Wow. When you see something like that, do you ever stop and just ask the question, well, what do you mean found? Who found her? Who told Joseph? Was it Mary? Was it a neighbor? Was it someone else in the community? Last week, when I shared this message with Debbie in front of our fireplace while we were trying to stay warm with no power, she came back pretty strongly in saying she believes that Mary must have told him. And if you look at the story in Luke from Mary's perspective, that's very possible. The scripture doesn't specifically state that, but that certainly could be possible. What I find very interesting here in the phrase found to be with child is that the term child does not even appear in the original Greek text of the language, which Matthew would be using as he's writing this narrative. In fact, what's in place of the term child is a term for stomach or belly. And literally, the phrase should be translated in stomach having. The point being, her pregnancy had become obvious. Joseph has a problem. Now, this is a very delicate way to express the process of Jesus' conception. Matthew is very delicate. Luke is very delicate in, in the treatment of it. Unlike 
the surrounding culture, pagan, Greek, and Roman stories of gods having sexual relations with humans in order to produce demigod heroes. This is very countercultural to that. Why? Because this is a creative act, not a sexual one. Jesus' human nature proceeded directly from the Spirit of God. And this reflects the Old Testament concept of the Spirit of God active in creation, active in the giving of life. That theme is pronounced multiple times, even from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the chaotic waters just prior to creation. This supernatural conception is necessary. As fully God, Jesus alone can pay the penalty for our sins. Finite humanity cannot atone for sin. But as fully human, Jesus is our worthy representative. He is our substitutionary sacrifice. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, that's noted throughout that entire book. The second reality that's revealed through Jesus' birth is found in verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What does it mean for Joseph to be just? Why is he described that way? What made him just? This is unlike the justness or righteousness. Some of your Bibles might say he is a righteous man. This is not defined in the same way as, say, the Apostle Paul would define that in the book of Romans. This, rather, is an Old Testament term. Remember, Joseph and Mary are coming right on the heels of the time of the Old Testament. This Old Testament term referred to one who was law-abiding, who was upright in character, and careful to obey God's commandments. That is descriptive of the kind of man that Joseph was. And as such, he would be aware of what the law, the Torah, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22, would have to say about his predicament. He's betrothed. He's not had sexual relations yet with his, his, the person with whom he's betrothed because their marriage has not been consummated, yet she's pregnant. What are you supposed to do? Deuteronomy chapter 22 gives very specific instructions or prescriptions for how to proceed with divorce. But Joseph was also compassionate. Notice that little conjunction, and he is a just man, yet, or and, he's unwilling to put her to shame. Joseph is not only just, he's also compassionate. Being just includes an element of mercy and compassion. Psalm 37, 21, King David writes, The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but, here's the contrast to that, but the righteous or the just is gracious and gives. So an element of justice is compassion and mercy. We also see here that Joseph is intentional. He seems willing to pay a personal price uh, in this predicament. He's willing to divorce her quietly, even though he has been publicly shamed. 
And there is uh, prescriptions for that as well in the Torah. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, gives specific instruction on how to divorce a betrothed quietly or privately in the sense of a what we might call an out-of-court settlement. Not to dismiss her by a public bill of divorce, which would have stigmatized her for the rest of her life as an adulteress. It basically would have destroyed her life. But he chooses to dismiss her privately without officially assigning any reason for it. Look at verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That word considered, unfortunately, in my view, is a bit of a weak translation. We don't get the depth of feeling that's really in the term. The word itself comes from a root word which means anger or wrath. It's used one other time in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 4. We can look at that later. Jesus himself is speaking to scribes, and he says, Why do you think evil? That's the term that is here translated with Joseph as considered. Why do you think evil in your hearts? One commentator I studied said that Joseph, in a sense, is fuming. I don't often use that term, but that's, I think, very descriptive of the emotions that must be going on. And I think it's important for us, as we study Scripture, to step into the context, step into Joseph's sandals, so to speak. He's resolved to divorce her quietly, but this has not come about easily. He's still fuming these things when what happens? Verse 29, verse 20, God breaks in. The term behold is going to appear multiple times throughout the book of Matthew. In fact, more than 60 times in the gospel according to Matthew. It's often used for describing some surprising action or, as in this case, the importance of what is about to follow. God breaks in. Behold, an angel appears in a dream, which, by the way, was an important form of divine communication in the Old Testament. In fact, according to multiple scriptural references in the Old Testament, divine guidance by dreams and or by angels is a regular feature of Old Testament spirituality. Think of Joseph's namesake, or that Joseph's father, Jacob, or how about the Old Testament character, Daniel? God chose to communicate in that fashion frequently in the Old Testament, and he's going to do that frequently with Joseph. In fact, from this point forward into chapter 2, four times God will communicate with Joseph via a dream. I'm not going to get into any form of dream theology today, but the point that I want to make is this. Joseph is at his deepest point of need here, and the use of this breaking in through a dream and an angel communicating through that dream is to emphasize that God is taking the initiative. 
God is going to guide Joseph's decisions and actions during this crucial period of time. And not just here in verse 20, but again, three more times in the next chapter. The angel reminds Joseph of his messianic lineage by calling him a son of David. There's only one other character who's identified as a son of David in this gospel of Matthew, and it's Jesus. He commands Joseph not to divorce Mary, but to follow through with the marriage. The child will therefore legally be Joseph's son, thus legally will become a son of David and legally belongs in the genealogy that we've already studied. He tells them to, not to fear, and the idea there is not necessarily of being afraid of something, but it really speaks more to the fact of, Joseph, don't shrink back from doing this thing that you're supposed to do. That's how that term really should be communicated. In either case, what's on display here is Joseph's faith and trust, and that's an important reality, faith and trust. Uh, they're central to God's redemptive plan. Verse 21 gives the third element or reality that gets revealed in Jesus' birth. Let's read that again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So verse 21 is basically this continuation of this angelic revelation that God is giving to Joseph, telling him exactly what to do and what will happen. Well, what's in a name? Why is this name, Jesus, significant? It is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name, Joshua. And that name, Jesus or Joshua, means Yahweh, that is the covenant name of God. Yahweh is salvation, or you could say Yahweh equals salvation. In the Old Testament, God Yahweh is the Savior. But here, Mary's son will become the agent of salvation. That statement alone is a declaration of the deity, the divinity of Jesus. What kind of salvation will Jesus bring? It's, the text says he's going to save his people. Well, what's he going to save them from? Notice, from their sin. His ministry will not focus on the physical liberation of Israel from its enemies. Even though that was the expectation of the people of Israel, encouraged by, you could say, kind of fanned by the religious leaders themselves. In fact, during the 400-year period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we like to refer to that as a 400-year period of relative prophetic silence. I believe God was still speaking to people's hearts and minds, but not through prophets like Isaiah or Malachi. Rather, during that time, even the religious leaders of Israel, like the Pharisees, for example, which came to, to power, came to presence during that 400-year period of time, they concocted all manner of descriptions on what the Messiah should look like, what he should be involved with, what he should be doing. They had all kinds of expectations, not necessarily biblical and not necessarily true. And this would be one of them. They expected their Messiah to come and physically liberate them from their enemies, specifically in this case, the Romans. 
But the spiritual salvation of God's people is what's priority here. Removing the alienation from God, which sin has created. Again, notice, he's going to be named Jesus for or, or because he will save his people, not from Rome, but from their sins. We need to hear this today. We live in a, in a day, an age, and a culture where self-professed social justice warriors, quote-unquote, are putting many other things in front of this priority thing, even those who profess allegiance to Jesus. Many of those things that people are calling for have biblical roots and are good things to pursue. Absolutely. But not in place of and not in front of saving or salvation by God from sin. That is first and foremost the priority, and it's identified here as the priority even in the very name that is given to Jesus. This in and of itself echoes Psalm 130, verses 7 through 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel the term redeem there or redemption means to purchase back, to buy back. He will redeem Israel from all its iniquities, all its sins. This verse points us to the fundamental purpose of Jesus' coming, the essential nature of his reign as King Jesus, as that Messiah King, and that is salvation from sin. The fourth reality that's revealed uh, here in this passage is found in the next verse, in verse 22. And the reality is, is that Scripture is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. From the end of the genealogy here in chapter 1, uh, verse 17, until the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5, Matthew is going to build almost every paragraph around at least one text of Scripture, and specifically the fulfillment of those Old Testament Scriptures. And I want us to notice right away that this is the Lord who is speaking by a prophet. It's not the prophet speaking. It's not a, the words of a man. It's the words of the Lord who, who is speaking through a prophet. Look also at the, the beginning of verse 23. What this prophet is, is saying as the mouthpiece for the Lord is, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is a quote, a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 7. And verse 14. Now I'm going to choose today not to go into a lot of detail on that, but that's what it's based on, Isaiah 7:14. And rather than talk a lot about the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus, I'm choosing to emphasize other things. But this is where this comes from, the idea of the virgin birth. This is where it comes from, this quote from Isaiah 7:14. The term sign in Scripture regularly refers to remarkable events, and more often than not, miraculous events. The term that's translated as virgin, both in Isaiah and here in, in Matthew, 
uh, appears just a few times in the Old Testament. But when it does, the specific Hebrew word for that typically refers to a young woman of marriageable age who is also a virgin, having never had sexual relations. And then the Septuagint, and you've maybe heard us refer to that before, that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done prior to the time of Jesus. It was in existence during the time of Jesus. He himself actually even quotes from it occasionally. The Septuagint chooses to translate that Hebrew term for virgin with a Greek word, which almost always means virgin. Again, a young woman of marriageable age, but who has had no sexual relations. Well, theologians debate why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. One reason given frequently is so that he could escape the sin nature, which, as we know from Scripture, is passed through the seed of a human father. I'm going to leave that debate on the shelf for today, but know that many, many books have been written about that topic, and you can definitely do your own research on that. But what I want us to see here is the reason that Matthew gives is simply, and this is the only reason he states, is simply that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, Matthew trusts the authority of God's word. Scripture reveals God's plans, and those who trust its authority need not doubt any miracle it promises. For those even who profess allegiance to Jesus, who have a hard time swallowing a virgin conception and virgin birth, well, guess what? If we trust the authority of God's word, then we're going to believe in things like the first few chapters of the, of the Bible, Genesis, namely, and the creation. If God can create everything we know around us out of nothing, then certainly he can bring a child uh, to bear in a virgin who's never had sexual relations. The fifth reality that's revealed in this birth of Jesus is what I would call the presence of God with us. God with us. The second half of verse 23, let's look at that again. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's as if Matthew is giving a definition here for that Old Testament name, Old Testament title, Emmanuel, so that his audience who may not know the Hebrew language can understand it, which means God with us is what he's saying. The salvation from sin denoted by the name Jesus is now here being shown to be accomplished by the coming of God among his people, thus the title Emmanuel. Interestingly, it's found only here in the New Testament. The only time, right here, verse 23. It's found two other times in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 14, and also in Isaiah chapter 8. Yet the theme of Emmanuel, the theme of God with us, is found throughout all of Scripture, beginning with creation, where God is walking through the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, and even after Adam and Eve had sinned willingly, willfully, and they're hiding from him, God wants to be with them. He wants to be in fellowship with them. It's claimed by Jesus himself in the final verse of this gospel, Matthew's gospel. 
chapter 28, verse 20. And behold, I am what? With you always to the end of the age. It's echoed by the apostle John in his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, descriptive of Jesus, became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. He's with us. And then I love this, and culminating in the very throne room of God at the end of human history, Revelation 21, 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be, and if we didn't get it already because of the two previous accounts, here's a third, God himself will be with them as their God. The theme of Emmanuel is clearly found throughout Scripture, even though the term itself is only used three times. As God with us, as Emmanuel, Jesus enables us then to come boldly before God's throne when we accept the forgiveness of sins he made available. And then we begin developing this growing, progressively more intimate relationship with him. That's his design from creation. That's his desire. Two more quick realities that are revealed at the end of this passage. The sixth one is that obedience comes as a result, or obedience results out of these five other realities that have been mentioned. Verse 24, Joseph wakes up. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. Obedience results. It's the key concept in this verse. Throughout chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew's gospel, it, it is Joseph who does what needs to be done. In fact, his obedience and submission are no less remarkable than Mary's. We frequently quote Luke 138, where Mary responds to her angelic messenger with, let it be to me according to your word. And that's an awesome statement of obedience. But Joseph doesn't get the same kind of emphasis, yet I want us to see this here. Throughout this chapter and on into the next, as God continues to reveal his plan for Joseph and Mary and Jesus directly through dreams and through angels, Joseph simply responds in obedience, simply responds in submission. And his obedience is costly. These two verbs here in verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. In other words, he, he fulfilled or he performed the word of the Lord. And then he took his wife. Literally, that meant he publicly accepted Mary as his wife. He joined her to himself. He completed the marriage, albeit... Notice, in the beginning of verse 25, there's that very important parenthetical statement, he knew her not. He had no sexual relations with her until she had given birth to a son. He is, you could say, taking on her shame as he brings her officially into his home. Many of you know Paul Martin, a member of our Westland campus here. After the first worship gathering this morning, Paul was present there, and Paul came up to me and was just thanking me for the message, and in the process of that said, you know, Tim, I, I wrote a song about this once, and a lot of you may not know that Paul is a songwriter. 
I asked him if he would send me the lyrics, which he did between services here, and I want to share this now. And Mary, his mother, sits quietly there, filled with a wondering joy, and back in the shadows, a righteous man with the light of belief in his eyes. Isn't that great? Joseph's obedience, one of the realities of this birth narrative of Jesus. The seventh one, the final one, the natural culmination of what's happening here, and it has application for us today, is found in verse 25. After the parenthetical statement that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, the verse simply ends with, and he, that is Joseph, he called his name Jesus. Joseph's role in naming Jesus was the responsibility of the legal father in his day, in that culture. It ensured the official status of the son and the heir to the family. This is a very important third verb. We had two verbs in the previous verse, and now a third. It says called, maybe better translated, named. He named his name, right? He named his name Jesus, meaning by doing so, by taking Mary into his home as his wife, his bride, and then naming Jesus. And he's naming him what the angel said. He's not calling him Joseph Jr. He's naming him Jesus. By doing that, Joseph is legally adopting Jesus, thus Legally, you could say through this act, Joseph is legally making Jesus a son of David. Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? I think that's a wonderful picture of what Jesus himself does for us, to us. Paul makes the statement in the first chapter of his letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, Ephesians 1.5. In fact, this will be part of our benediction this morning. He predestined us for adoption to himself. Now, this is Jesus who's doing this on our behalf. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Later this week, Deb and I will get to experience the joy of adoption. Our eighth grandchild, who has been a foster grand, our oldest daughter and son-in-law have been providing foster care for the last three years. This little girl is going to become a full-fledged adopted member of our family. And that is just such a beautiful picture of what is happening here in this story of uh, Matthew in the birth of Jesus, and also a wonderful picture of what Jesus does to us as he adopts us into the family of God. Well, in conclusion, Jesus' birth reveals seven realities of God's redemptive plan. Quick review here that it is supernatural, faith and trust are central, it is all about salvation from sin. Scripture is fulfilled, the presence of God with us is central, obedience results, and we are adopted as sons. At the beginning of this message, I stated, my hope is that you will remember this next Christmas. But here's the one thing I want all of us to remember at all times, not just at Christmas. 
As wonderful a model that Joseph was of justice and compassion and faith and trust and obedience, this birth narrative that Matthew's given us is ultimately not about Joseph. This is not about a human model for us to emulate. No, this is about God. This is about his purposes, his plan to restore the relationship with the capstone of his, of his creation, men and women, humankind. This story is about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit, we thank you for the truth of your word written thousands of years ago, yet resonating today with such, such life, such clarity. Help us, Lord, not only to understand your word now and to receive your word into our lives, but to allow your word to do its work, to transform our lives. For those who, Father, may be sitting here listening and not fully understanding what all these things mean, especially the last point of being adopted as your sons and daughters into your family, Lord, would you continue to do a work of grace and draw those folks to yourself? And I pray that they would reach out, ask me or one of the elders or another pastor what that means and how can that, be, how can that become true for them. For those of us who do profess allegiance in you, for those of us who do celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, I pray that these verses will ring true, will help us to better understand what's happening here. Thank you for the model of Joseph, but more importantly, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the desire to be in relationship as our God with us. And we ask that you would continue to glorify yourself through us. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.